Happy Saturday, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to the very first inaugural episode of The Island of Dr. Garneau. <laughs> I'm Kelly J. Lewis, and with me is Dr. Chris Garneau, and uh, we're going to talk a lot about some different social issues and uh, just whatever else comes to mind. So, Dr. Garneau, thank you so much, and uh, let's uh, let's do this. All right, excellent. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I get a chance every once in a while to teach these kind of like larger, broad overview questions, you know, courses about these larger questions. So I'm a sociologist, which is, it's kind of hard to explain what I do. You know, my, like my kids would be like, what is that? I don't know. Well, you know, like, I, you know, we just talk about things. Um, and so this summer I'm teaching social problems and I thought maybe, you know, we can just kind of bring in what I'm doing in the classroom kind of onto the waves and, and see how people feel about it. And um, uh, I, I think today was really good. Uh, I've got a really great group of students this summer, and we're talking about, um, you know, things as they come up. So, so far, we talked about social class inequality a little bit, and right now uh, we're working on gender, and then we start race tomorrow. So we had a really great discussion of gender, and um, we had a couple of days, you know, we didn't get real in-depth into it, but the question that we were asking, and I think it's a it's an interesting question, um, is are th how have things changed, and how much have things changed? And we kind of got stuck on this today because when it comes to inequality, especially in the workplace, when we're talking about men and women and differences in, in, in wages, and not, it's not just wages, it's also power and opportunities. So things have definitely changed. I mean, you know, from the time my grandmother was, uh, you know, was, was uh, uh, around doing stuff to today. So, you know, I wouldn't say it hasn't changed, but what's really interesting is when we look at the larger stage that men and women occupy, there's still a huge disparity. So there are 23 Democrats running for president right now, and a record number are women, but it's still way under 50%. You know, we've got, I think, five or six maybe out of those 23, and that's considered progress. I think that's an interesting statement about we've progressed so far that maybe a third of the candidates in the most progressive party of the two that we have are women when it should be 50%. I mean, and so it's, it's, have we made ground? Have we gained ground? Yeah, but in, it, in, it, it's very slow and incremental. And I think it has to do with structural roadblocks that have been put in place for a very long time that still disproportionately benefit men. And uh, I don't know. So we had, just had a really great conversation about that today, um, about, you know, how the wage gap plays out. And we can talk about the different ins and outs of that. Um, but more than anything, it's just kind of keeping an awareness out there that progress has been made and we celebrate the progress that has been made and we celebrate the people that wave the banner in front of us, the, you know, the feminist movements of the 60s and 70s that kind of lead us into where we are today. Um, and then also look at the progress that's yet to be made and figure out exactly where we're going to go from here. And also really cool in that class, we got 18 students and only two of them are dudes. So um, the women get to kind of get to run the show a little bit. And uh, it's fun for me. I, I, I shut up a lot. And uh, so today I just got to listen. And um, I don't know, I really enjoyed it. It was it was a lot of fun. You know, that is very interesting about what you say about, uh, I think there's six women that are running on the Democratic, uh, trying to uh, get the nomination for the Democratic candidacy. And, you know, if you'll remember, Geraldine Ferraro was the very first yeah. woman that was on that level. And she was a vice presidential candidate. That, I mean... 
people, you know, they think that cost Mondale. Yeah. You know, and and it and really it probably did. Mm-hmm. But 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 you know, the Democrats have been the one that and of course and then the Republicans had Sarah Palin yeah. who you know, was was almost our vice president. See, I'm still, I'm still, yeah. I can't even say it without fear in my voice. And I, and I, and I consider myself a feminist. But, but you know, and then Hillary Clinton got to run as the as the nominee. So, so that that ceiling has been cracked, and 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 now we have these. Now we have women of color running, though. Right. That is that to me is is one of the. Most interesting um, dynamic shifts with the last election in the midterm elections is because not only were women running in droves, but they were winning. Right. And they were unseating Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, unseating very powerful, lifelong uh, congressional uh, leaders. And I think I think that is a really I think that's really where the shift is starting to really kind of um, take a, a really fast turn. Yeah, and what was interesting about 2018, I think it's if if we needed catalyst to get women more on the front stage of politics, Donald Trump was it. You know, I mean, that really was it. Um, the Women's March, I, I remember the one in Oklahoma City. Uh, I got a chance to go out and be part of it, and just to kind of see the the electricity and every like there, everyone was just really fired up. Um, and it's in reaction to, you know, a, a guy that is just very kind of flippant towards, you know, women's issues. And he's just been very dismissive in a lot of ways. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and, you know, throw my political stripes out there. I don't care. Um, but it's in, in, in. So what's the reaction? The reaction was, yeah, there's anger, but it's like, well, you know, well, forget you, dude. I'm going to run. You know, that's what I'm going to do about this. And uh, we had in Oklahoma, uh, we flipped the fifth, which uh, we got Kendra Horn in there. Huge. That was so big for Oklahoma. And you even had like people at the national stage saying, wait, did Oklahoma get a Democrat elected? Yeah, we did. Um, you know, the more urban part of Oklahoma, we've got some young hit people that were voting and they're looking for a change. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's inspiring in a lot of ways. And I'm interested to see like what this new class uh, of especially fairly younger women for political, you know, uh, so 40s, <laughs> you know, 30s and women in their 30s and 40s shaking things up um, because we've had the old dude white club. You know, we've we've done that for a while. Um, so I, I, I can't see what's, uh, you know, any detriment to this, this new kind of shift in power, but you know, it's not just in politics too. It's also looking towards, um, women who are moving into the financial world, corporate world, uh, more CEOs, more CFOs, um, women who are, you know, uh, becoming more instrumental within the medical profession and the academic profession. So it's the, the idea is what happens when we take this, um, this half of, Humanity, I'd say society, but it's worldwide, and try to close the gap between what has been and what could be. There's an interesting book. It was called Half. I think it was Half This Guy, and it was just really about like what happens if you only get half of the perspectives in the world, and how much do you miss out on? Like all the, you know, think about like 
cures for diseases, when we think about um, solutions for political problems, environmental uh, degradation, uh, all these different problems that we have, if half of the world is limited to what they can do, then we all lose out. We all miss out. So I think this is an exciting time. We live in a really cool time to be able to explore that. I think it's great. Well, and that's very interesting, too, because, you know, as far as gender goes, I, I have a lot of questions for you about gender, but as far as like that goes, I mean, even historically, women's contributions on on in mathematics and engineering and all levels of science and, and music and things like that, our, our accomplishments have largely gone unsung. And so now with the age of the internet and everything else like that, you can, you can get on and Google and find some really amazing things that came from women that you didn't, wouldn't even realize because it's not touted because a man patented it or, you know what I mean? Or he got his picture taken with the prototype or, or, you know, and so historically women have been largely left out of that for, you know, for, I say misogynistic, misogynistic, um, religious. I think I think that conservative. I say conservative religious kind of women need to stay at home and be the caretakers and and that attitude. And the men at the top had that attitude, right. so they were going to make sure that, especially when single women started coming yes. ab- coming about and and starting to choose differently and not choose to have children and choose to get married later if at all and to choose their education and their career and and that that was a bold dynamic shift in gender right there and I don't know that that generation that was so hell bent on tamping down women there's some of them that are still alive and still very much in power and those are also the ones that tend to vote in large numbers. Um, so, you know, we got the the younger millennials and Gen Z uh, voted in the midterms in levels that we hadn't seen before. And I think maybe that had something to do with it. I think keeping young voters engaged is really important. Um, so I want to backtrack just a little bit because this is a really important story. And um, as a sociologist, I, I love... Uh, when I learn something new that I didn't know before. So sometimes I'll come across, I'll, I'll read a book, and I'm just like, well, this wasn't what I thought it was at all. So um, when it when it comes to gender, one of the most fascinating books I've ever read um, is called The Way We Never Were. And I think it was, um, the author's name is uh, Hoshield, and it's a weird spelling, H-O-C-H, like Hawk's child. Uh, and she's a, a sociologist that does like economic sociology, sociology of women. And she was uh, trying to, come up with this historical story of like what is this gender dynamic between men and women and like how did it start and you know if we if we look back as far as we can patriarchy is very old it's been kind of a mainstay had to do with the fact that um, men were larger in stature had more testosterone so they could grow muscle mass and bone mass and then you know we we start getting into the nitty-gritty of it and we find out that a lot of these things that we thought were true aren't true and and one of the the first is that men are just naturally bigger just even at the at the biological level in most societies men had early access to calories before women we can find traditional societies where women grew quite tall relative to men in matriarchal societies where so even the some of the stuff that we think is biological really is societal so we can do so much within the way that we structure uh just our our basic stuff like nutrition and opportunity to education um to 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 try to even the playing field but in the the way we never were 
it, it kind of gets back to this idea that in traditional societies, for the most part, men and women, yeah, they had different jobs, but they both worked and they usually worked side by side. And the only exception had to do with childbearing because women had that uh, only bio, only had that biological capability. And so, yeah, women stayed a little bit closer to the home to, to tend to children. But once the children are able to be up and on their own, the children kind of do their own thing. We, you know, we coddle our kids in, in, in modern society. Traditional societies can go to places in South America that haven't been touched by modern society. Ten-year-olds are walking around, you know, just doing their own thing. And they've been taught and they're they're self-sufficient enough to do that. Here, we, you know, we wrap them up in, 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 in plastic and don't let them do anything. There, once the kids are old enough, sometimes they would help with the work. But especially with agricultural work, men and women worked side by side. And it wasn't this dichotomy of, of women had to tend to the home because there was so much work that needed to be done. It was a human endeavor, not a male endeavor. So when we really start seeing this shift is in periods of affluence when, and a lot of this had to do with you know exploitation uh, by European settlement. And what that did is it allowed enough wealth that within, you know this is a, a Eurocentric idea that well, maybe we have enough money that, you know, dad can go off to work and mom can stay home. So after World War II, when the United States controlled over half the world's wealth, what we saw happen was exactly that. So dad had a unionized job, could go out work 40 hours a week, and there was enough money for mom to stay home. And that became the traditional family. But the point of the book is that's not the way we were. That's the way we never were. Um, that, that it's 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 not that men and women didn't have different roles. It's just that we never pushed women into such a confined corner as we saw during Donna Reed uh, you know if we look at the old you know leave it to beaver um, those old stereotypes of women yeah they stayed home and more frequently but this idea that they didn't have a profession that their profession was mom uh, their profession was homemaker we invented that and that's in, in a lot of ways that's a European creation uh, and that has been then projected as this American ideal so when I see them the red mega hats and people say make America great again, I think they're looking at that time period in some ways. And yeah, for some people, that was a great time period. If you, were, uh, if you weren't white and if you were a woman, maybe that wasn't such a great time period. Yeah, and I think that's the whole, to me, that's what that whole MAGA thing represents is going back into a time where white men dominated absolutely everything. And you can't tell me that Trump doesn't have that mentality. Oh, yeah. He he's proud of it. And in and, and every policy and everything that he does from um, the whole, I say, faux pro-choice or uh, faux pro-life right. is because if, if it were came down to one of their daughters or their granddaughters and it was some kind of undesirable person, they'd be the first they, – they have access because of their wealth. Right. But not be but forcing poor women to have children they can't afford, which is something Margaret Atwood said in a in an article a couple of weeks ago, is is just completely inhumane. It is a social class issue too, because as you mentioned before, uh, when you know, the abortion issue when it was relegated to the black market before Roe v. Wade. Um, there was differences in access as to who was able to carry that out. Um, there's a, you know, the uh, one of the statistics that we have, and, and this gets fought about all the time, is what did what did Roe v. Wade do for 
the number of abortions in America, well, it probably increased it the same way that the, you know, repealing prohibition increased um, alcohol consumption. But you are delusional if you think that outlawing anything is going to change that behavior. There is a demand for it. It is a human condition, a human thing that's always been done. And there's a, an anthropologist who I work with who, who said that um, abortion was seen as actually a far more humane way of dealing with overpopulation uh, early on in, in, in human history when uh, starvation and famine was a very common thing and populations had to figure out how they were going to survive. That was almost seen as a mechanism, uh, a more humane way of doing it than watching people starve to death. So it's when we say abortion is old and old human practice, we mean old. It's We've been doing this for a very long time. Well, and just a little bit of my my Kiowa history, and this is this is I think it's I think it's one of the most poignant stories in either side of my family. And when you know when the mother died in childbirth, they would bury the baby with the mother. That was that was how it was, you know. And so my great great grandmother, her mother died in childbirth with her, and so they were going to bury bury her. With, with the mother. That's how they did it. You wow. know, I mean, this is a live baby. Wow. And yeah. um, her older brother took her and hid her for two months That's and a... brought her back. Wow, what a and story. Just, yeah. yeah. And so it's just, it, it, the, just the whole thing from, and, and, but it's just like you said, I mean, they're still on the planes. I mean, when I talk about my, my great, great grandparents, I mean, it's not this, oh, you know, this is a plantation and we were on a, you know, on a farm and all this kind of stuff. They were still on the planes. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think people really understand how very close we still are to, to that part of us. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and so, Especially for natives and especially for native women, it has been a really hard adjustment because not only changing that socialist kind of side of us to where our matriarchal um, tribes, the women made those decisions and you're not going to abuse a woman in that tribe. You know what I mean? And so this whole domestic abuse and things like that, that's just not how we did things. That wasn't, you know what I mean? And we did have those survival mechanisms in place and we did have our own sense of justice and banishment and different things like that. But that was, that was the way that we survived for hundreds of years before, right. you know, settler imperialism. Exactly. So, and if you look at European colonialism, I mean, across minority groups, you see that's the case. You see um, the family arrangements of African Americans, American Indians, Latinos being very, very different culturally, traditionally, than what Europeans um, brought with them through colonization. What What's fascinating, though, is that white and I, I, I've started to move away from white, the term white privilege, and white privilege is a thing. Um, I think it's more white supremacy. So the, the, you know, that supreme status is where that term comes from. When I say white supremacy, I don't mean burning crosses and, and hoods. I mean a system that provides such advantage that it's really hard for white people to fall, um, that, that's been created in that sense. But one of the ways that we do that is we just, we've normalized family relations, and I know we're kind of getting off into race, but this is good to talk about. We've normalized the family relations of a Eurocentric understanding. And I always tell my students that it's, this is, it's such a European idea to send your kids to daycare and your grandparents to the old folks' home. 
because people thought it was really weird when Michelle Obama invited her mother to live in the White House. I believe she lived there for a few years. Um, and that is part of the black matriarch. That is part of that, uh, that tradition, uh, that system. Um, for white Americans, that seemed very strange because what do we do? We pay a bunch of money to have someone watch our kids and then we pay money for someone to watch our parents. Where in most other societies, there's this magical thing that happens when parents go off to work and grandparents a lot of times will take care of young children. And number one, it, it reduces the cost so you're not paying someone to, to watch your, keep your kid alive for eight hours a day. And you're, you're gaining an intergenerational connection. And you find that it's, and certainly some white families have experienced that, traditionally poor and, and working class white families. Um, but that is a that is a position of privilege to be able to uh, um, send your kids somewhere and then send you know the old folks somewhere else. And it's I don't think that's necessarily a functional arrangement. Yeah, you, maybe you're able to afford it and it's a convenience for you, but that's not how family life has existed for most cultures and most civilizations. So when we look at this implementation of the colonial white family, man, it's, it's you know, I mean, for me, it just seems so very normal and, until you start looking at, like, how other people do things and you're like, oh, that makes so much more sense. Like, you know, why, like, why do we pay so much money to do this? Because it's really expensive. All this stuff is very expensive. Um... Or, you know, just the, the, uh, the idea of men being the breadwinner, whatever that means. Like, that is a, you know, a, again, that is um, a white patriarchal kind of uh, tendency that we have. So even when we talk about patriarchy, we're still talking about it in a racialized way. And so um, it's very complex stuff. This is, man, this is some heady stuff. My brain's already hurting. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so here's something else that I want to know about, you know, we talk about gender and gender is actually losing its meaning. The Just the word gender, because there are so many different ways that you can identify. A person can identify themselves now. It's yeah. not just male or female or man or woman. And that's another thing where that, that patriarchy is having a really difficult time. And, you know, I, USAO, we have one of the most vibrant, most alive LGBTQ uh, plus communities I, I've, I've ever seen in rural Oklahoma. Oh, absolutely. It, it is just, I love it. It's fascinating to me. But, you know, the the acceptance on USAO campus is kind of an anomaly because once you get out of those, once you get out of those gates, it's not like that. And so I think it's, I think it's a fantastic thing for those students to have that, that place where they know that, that they can belong and, and they they can use those preferred pronouns. Mm -hmm. They can use that um, that other uh, the way that they see themselves and and can express that. Yeah, and USAO is also um, I I found this fascinating. My son was applying to college, and it was the only application that we came across that asked preferred pronouns and those types of things, and so and preferred names. And I just love that. I thought it was great. Um, we also have a you know a unisex bathroom there in Trout Hall. So I, I mean, I, the the university itself is such a cool little bubble. Um, it's just got its own vibe. You know, it's a bit of an art school, um, but it's always been kind of unique. It was traditionally you know the only place that women could go to college. Um, and so we've got this history of just being very unique. So uh, very happy that it's here in the Chickasha community. But you know, kind of shifting into this idea of gender identity um, um, real quick because this is this is kind of new research and we're still um, on it. But you know that the. the 
as you mentioned before, patriarchal structures really need the binary. We need male, female, masculine, feminine, and that's all there is. And so when we counter that with evidence, like we see a lot of pushback because I hear all the time there are only two genders. And I'm like, there's so much wrong with that one statement. Um, so first off, sex and gender are different. Sex is biological for those, you know, those of you who are, um, you know, just kind of need a quick one-on-one here. They're actually six sexes, not two. Um, so sex is just X, Y, and that's it. And so, you know, we're, do you, how many X chromosomes do you have? How many Y? Sometimes you have broken X, Y chromosomes. So, and that affects, you know, certain things like how you present masculine, feminine, um, whether or not you can have children. Um, but sex is purely biological. When we talk about gender, gender is, you know, it's, it's, sociological in gender expression. So um, you can be cisgender, cisgender meaning you identify as male and uh, you are bodily male, but you may want to express female. And meaning you're just, you, you may know you're a man in your head um, and you have a male body, but you just prefer expressing yourself in a more feminine way or androgynous way. So expression is the way we do gender. Gender isn't something we are, it's something we do. Um, but the, the, there's also a neurological component of it that we call gender identity. We don't have a much better term for it yet, but the idea is that when you're born, there are certain um, androgens uh, that need to be masculinized or feminized, um, and depending upon how brain development works, you like we know there's a part of the brain that just kind of knows what you are. There's a self-identity part of the part of it, and you kind of know early on. And then during puberty, you really start to know. Like that's when you, you you kind of your your body meshes up. If you're cisgender, meaning you identify as female and you were born female, um, you never have to question it because everyone tells you. They, they call you she and her, and they treat you feminine. And so it just kind of all, it's in, it's in lockstep. When we talk about people who are transgender or non-binary, what that means is that their brain structure looks different. Um, it's, so we know that men and women have very similar brains. And when I say there are differences, I don't mean that men are better at science or that women are better at housekeeping. Not that, not that. that's not what it is. Uh, women have do have slightly larger uh, hippocampuses, which um, that is in charge of memory. So women actually do have just a slight edge in memory, um, not by a lot. And by the way, men can increase that um, with practice. Uh, and men have more gray area in the prefrontal cortex. And that sometimes we think it has something to do with spatial um, uh, reasoning, but that's actually not true. Of course, it has more to do with the way we're raised. Point is, the brain looks different. And if you're a neurologist looking at brain scans all day, and you've got brain scans of men and women, you're very used to looking at what those what those are. So if someone is a trans man, meaning um, they were assigned female at birth, but they know in their mind that they are a man, um, under a brain scan, under an MRI, you would see that, yes, they have a male brain. Um, and, wow. And so that this is, they're not mentally ill, but it's not a delusion. Um, now, the, the DSM removed transgender as a um, as a mental disorder, there is something called gender dysphoria. And so gender dysphoria is when those things are out of concert. And that's really more of a kind of depression or anxiety that is, uh, that, that's kind of caused by your body and your brain being out of sync. So imagine if you woke up tomorrow in someone else's body, like how you would feel, right? That's what that's like. So puberty for a lot of transgender individuals is reported like that. Like, once I, you know, once I started to um, get, you know, go further through puberty, I just really felt like this wasn't me. And so that dysphoria, that's what it is. Um, so that in and of itself is not a mental illness. It's a symptom of the brain being out of concert with the body. So the, the issue here is the brain and the body aren't lining up. So what do you do? Well, you can't change someone's brain. You can't get them a brain implant. So the easiest thing that, that a lot of transgender individuals have known for a long time is to socially transition to, um, if you, if you know that you are, 
female, then to you know change style of dress, hairstyle, pronouns, names, those things, so that those start to line up. And what we know is when those when those individuals are in um, supportive communities, that that gender dysphoria starts to alleviate, and a lot of the symptoms that are associated with it um, start to alleviate. And so, supportive communities, more than anything, seem to be a huge uh, benefit for individuals who are transgender. So, for places like USAO, um, communities that support uh, unisex bathrooms, that just just the little things like that, I think, are are super important. But when we talk about gender, that's that's the new frontier, I and mean, we're still, you know, that 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 one's um, it's difficult for a lot of people who uh, are. Maybe you know come from traditional backgrounds or don't you know religious backgrounds who are, aren't used to it to kind of get used to that and and, and that's a, a newer thing for especially older generations to kind of ease into. But man, for these young kids, they're so savvy about this kind of stuff. It's really not a big deal for them at all, and that's why I love working with these students. They're super cool, super hip. And and you know you don't see that um, that meanness from the the more conservative students. Or, or anything True. like that, because I have, I mean, in my time at USAO, I, I've known several, several students to transition, and it, they blossom more when they're, it, it's just, it's, yeah. it has been so amazing to see a couple of the young people transition, like right, right before my eyes in different classes and different things like that, and just see them be more comfortable within themselves. And it's, it is amazing. And that is one of the things that I really like about USAO. And the other thing too, just even like, as you mentioned before, even our conservative, more conservative, younger students, what I think is absolutely fascinating is, um, for them, like, being gay, lesbian, or bisexual, like for the most part, on the whole, just doesn't seem to be an issue. We have students that are part of religious organizations that then partner with, you know, um, our LGBTQ uh, communities. Uh, and, and that's something that I think is more generational than it is political. And they're just kind of over, especially like sexual orientation. I Man, this, this younger generation, in some ways... I, I feel like they're kind of looking at, at me. I'm a Gen Xer mm-hmm. and being like, what was the deal? Yeah. <laughs> like, why was that a fight? I get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Garno. And you can catch Dr. Garno here on Talk Jive Radio every week. And if you miss any of the live shows, you can catch us on the podcast page right there from the Talk Jive homepage. Until next Saturday, from the Isle of Dr. Garno, I'm Kelly J. Lewis with Dr. Chris Garno. Have a great weekend, everyone.